Hey guys, it is Michael Hunter. You can find me on Twitter at ACCBR1. It is episode number 72. I appreciate you guys taking the time to join me on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, today I have the Bustin Brackets site expert. His name is Tristan Freeman. You can find him on Twitter at HoopsNot351. He is a Pittsburgh native. He is a Pittsburgh men's basketball fan. Um, he is a, a long-suffering well, actually, you know, I say a long-suffering bottom dweller with myself in the bottom of the ACC, but Pittsburgh really hasn't been that bad for that long. So I guess he's uh, he's probably in a, a better mindset than I am as far as his fandom goes. Uh, we talked about everything. We talked about Jamie Dixon's departure. We talked about Kevin Stallings' hire and departure. We talked about Jeff Capel's hire and what, uh, you know, what Tristan's impression is so far and the direction of where, where the program is headed. <clears throat> Um, overall, good conversation. Um, I was hoping that uh, that we might get after it a little bit because T and I disagree on a, a lot of different aspects. But uh, you know, he, he's my one of my editors over there. He's my site expert over at Bustin Brackets. So unfortunately, we didn't get into uh, too much arguing. Um, typically, we disagree a little bit more, but uh, this was pretty tame, um, unfortunately. But uh, you know, it's it's a pretty good uh, conversation. I think it's about forty five minutes long. So uh, check me out, Bustin Brackets for some uh, some GTEC news. That's where I cover GTEC predominantly. I've got uh, the top 25 returning players in the ACC coming out probably this week at some point. And I'm also working on another project for Fansided, which uh, I'm pretty excited about. It's a uh, it's a new opportunity, and they they came to me, and Tristan actually recommended me for it. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to tackling that. And that's a that's a nationwide project. It'll it'll encompass college basketball and some college basketball history, and it allows me to step outside the ACC a little bit. So don't forget to uh, like, rate, review, subscribe, share. Uh, get on iTunes or Apple and or Spotify. Leave a comment leave a five-star review it helps me uh broadcast to a a larger audience and uh, it also attracts uh you know some advertisers and allows the podcast to turn profit which you know is important i think um i'd I'd love to lie to you and tell you that it's not important but it is um i guess uh yeah accbasketballreport.com we're getting ready to uh to crank it up i've had the chimp doing some gambling stuff lately which is kind of his wheelhouse so he put out uh, a futures piece the other day talking about um, national championship odds and how you can make a buck and talked about uh you know some new things that are available to gamblers where you know um, lottery tickets and you can kind of game the system a little bit and there's a there's a new marketplace for actual physical tickets that, uh, that you can sell uh, a company called Prop Swap. So go to accbasketballreport.com, give that a read. Um, don't forget to tell your friends about this. And I guess that is it, gentlemen and ladies. I will talk to you after the uh, the interview ends. This is Tristan Freeman of Bustin' Brackets, ACCBR, episode number 72. Farrell turns the key, drives the lane with three on the shot clock. Thanks for joining me on episode number 71 of ACC Basketball Report. Today I have uh, Pittsburgh native and Pittsburgh men's basketball fan Tristan Freeman as a guest. Tristan is also my editor at Bustin' Brackets, a site expert for the fan-sided site that I write for. T, I thank you for joining me, man. How's it going? Good, good. I appreciate you having me on and willing to talk about uh, Pittsburgh basketball. Now that we're finally, you know, 
somewhat decent enough to warrant <laughs> any kind of conversation. Climbing the ladder. Um, so I guess in that uh, in that vein, you know, new court, new uniforms. You know, your coach is is 16, 18 months old. What? Uh, how, how do you feel about Pittsburgh basketball's attempt to rebrand the program in the post Kevin Stallings era? Yeah, you, you, when you go zero and eighteen in a season, and you are literally one of the biggest laughing stocks in the recent Power Conference era, you have to scrub away, literally scrub away anything associated with that uniforms, court, wh- whatever the building looks like, anything that resembles it, including most of the players. So I appreciate the fact that the program is trying to truly move forward and erase that bad memories from our mind and appreciate that, you know, Capel uh, is putting his uh, best foot in and really leaning into the city and trying to make his own culture. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a Pittsburgh fan. Um, I do have an appreciation for some of the players that have come through the program over the years. Obviously, uh, Kyle Krauser comes to mind. Sam Young is definitely a player that sticks out to me. I've always been a fan of their color scheme, which has also been kind of changed up in the rebranding. Um, we're going to more of a navy, I guess, now. Um, I, I do. I think that uh, the the new court layout that came out last week. I think that looks. I think that looks fantastic. Uh, you mentioned kind of scrubbing the program. There's only two players that remain from that 0 and 18 team from a couple of years ago. One of which is, in my opinion, the horribly underrated uh, Terrell Brown, who should start at center for them this year. Uh, if you were to give Coach Capel a letter grade on flipping this roster, what would it be? Yeah, if you based off of expectations of coming in the 0-18 campaign, I have to give it an A simply because of how successful that 2018 recruiting class was. Mm-hmm. Uh, Xavier Johnson, three-star guy that was brought in late in the process, became an all-ACC caliber player. Trey McGowan's was an effective freshman. Uh, and they're the ones that gave us hope because you don't really expect you know non-top 100 freshmen to give you the kind of lift they did, but they literally were the reason why we won the games we did last year, and it, and it gives us a hope and a great foundation to build off of. So considering what it, it could have been normally, I'd give Capel in this short period of time an A because he really can't do much better. Yeah, I think, um, you know, for those who don't know, uh, Xavier Johnson was a, a recruit ranked, for the most part, in the 250s to the 350s. Um, he was a guy that G-Tech was after for a bit. But uh, but fell off of when they signed Mike DeVoe. Do you think that that his success can be attributed to Capel's ability to develop guards, or is that a failing of of prognosticators in in recruiting services uh, to properly evaluate his talent? Yeah, you're you're always going to see three star players every year fall under the cracks that shouldn't have. You know, mm-hmm. Texas Tech went to the title game off of one in Jarrett Culver. And you've seen plenty of other players, you know, Miles Powell, plenty of other guys who, you know, fly under the cracks and become stars. And, you know, I think it, you know, what's happened with not only Johnson, but uh, Trey McGowan's too, it, is, it showed why it was so important to get a guy like Jeff Capel, who isn't just a solid recruiter, but has been, had history of developing talent. 
And that's the only way you can win in Pittsburgh. You can't bring in five-star guys and think you can win that way. Or even land the transfers who are going to want to play in, you know, the cold of what cold of winter in Pittsburgh. You're going mm-hmm. to have to bring in the guys who to combine to your system, develop them over time, and hopefully and hope that they flourish. And we've seen great signs of Johnson, uh, some signs of McGowan waiting for consistency, and even from some of the other underclassmen. So I think that's the biggest takeaway from Capel so far is that he's brought in good players and he's turned them into uh, borderline great So early on. Following following Jamie Dixon era, um, Pitt hires Kevin Stallings, which was a parachute deal. Um, you know, Vanderbilt was kind of shaky on keeping him. Um, so he parachutes out to Pittsburgh, which it could be considered... You know, one of the worst power six hires in the last twenty years. I don't think you would. I don't. I don't think you would contest that. When when they moved on from Stallings, they gave him a hefty buyout, around ten million dollars, I believe. In that coaching search, was was Capel your number one choice? You know, are you a Brandon Knight guy as far as bringing Brandon back home, or or is there someone else out there that you had your eye on to to take over your program? Yeah, so I'll start with Brandon Knight. I think it would have been a tragedy to have him come in in this kind of situation because he doesn't have recruiting ties on any kind of national basis outside of New York and Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And to have him come in in the ACC against what you have, borderline six Hall of Fame coaches at this point, it, it it just would have tarnished the great legacy he had. And I think Pittsburgh was right to go for an experienced person who has the ability to compete with some of these best coaches. But as far as Capel goes, he really was on anyone's radar because Pittsburgh, you know, as fans, you expect to go after the hot names in the coaching carousel. So whether it was Ryan Odom from UNBC or Nate Oates from Buffalo at the time, you're hoping to land one of them. But you know, all of them said no. And in fact, Pittsburgh wanted another Duke assistant at the time in John Shire, mm-hmm. who would have fit the mold, you know, protege of Coach K, ACC guy. It would have been worked. But I have a feeling that he probably declined it because I think there's, you know, some speculation that he might be the next guy. He might be the heir apparent to mm-hmm. Coach K whenever that happens. So you look at a guy like Capel, and I think he was looking at the coaching's carousel as well with some of the hires like Shaka Smart at Texas, Archie Miller at Indiana, and I think he realized he's not ever going to be in line for these jobs. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was ever the hot name. I don't think he was the guy getting most of the credit when it comes to Duke's success. And it was like, well, what is he going to do? I, I, I think he needed that springboard, that springboard program. Yeah. You know, you know, yeah. the Oklahoma situation ended um, in some kind of controversy. I think he needed to establish himself again in the same kind of way that he did it at Virginia Commonwealth before he yeah. he steps up to a, a, a job such as in Indiana or Texas or something like that. Yeah, and I think you know, for him, it's like you know, how much longer do you want to stay there? Mm-hmm. And when the Pitt situation came. You know, on one hand, it's like, okay, it's a complete rebuild. You're not going to win anytime soon. On the other hand, Pittsburgh fans just basically have egg on their face still 
from the Jamie Dixon situation that created Kevin Stallings coming in. Mm. So you're not going to hear a single word about Jeff Capel negatively for the next three, four years mm-hmm. just because of that. So he has no pressure. Got a nice deal from Pittsburgh, too. And he, pre- and he gets to stay in the ACC and work on what he wants before either going for a bigger job or being a head coach, which is what I think he always wanted to be. So it turned into an accidental perfect match for a program who needed someone with experience, who could recruit, but also wasn't in line to get a bigger job. So it kind of worked out in the end, but if it wasn't for the fact that Pittsburgh was so bad, you know, I think people were going to start looking at the administration the same way they were looking at UCLA and St. John's this offseason. So you you've mentioned Jamie Dixon a couple times. I'm interested. You know, typically I don't go this far back, but it's it's kind of compelling because I I don't have Pittsburgh fans on the show very often. What's your take on how things ended with Dixon? Was it warranted? Which some people would suggest that he kind of wore out his welcome. Um, others suggest that you know he's one of the greatest coaches in program history. So you know you kind of ride through the rough times. You know, considering where they went after he left. You know, whatever it is, four years later. What's your take on how the Jamie Dixon era ended in in Pittsburgh? It it was an unmitigated disaster on everyone's on everyone's account. Simply uh, because you know, of the Stallings hauling, or because Dixon shouldn't have been fired or pushed out to begin with. I think. Well, in in hindsight, the Stallings hire confirmed. You know. I think in Pittsburgh, there was you was on one side. You was either pro-Dixon or anti-Dixon. Right. If you were pro-Dixon, your mindset is what I had, which is you're making the tournament just about every year. So you're, you were pro-Dixon you, at the time? Oh, uh, 100%. Because yeah. I, I looked at it from this standpoint. Uh, the landscape was changing during this time. Mm-hmm. You had a, probably a good 15 programs elevate themselves to national contention to make the tournament. You look at Wichita State, BCU, Butler, Xavier, you know, mm-hmm. it's getting to a point where, you know, where you consider blue bloods like UCLA, Texas, Indiana, and even Syracuse, can't even make the tournament. Right. So if you have a good situation, why mess it up? Because you feel like you should be better. And I think, um, you know, during the Big East time, you know, no one had an issue with Jamie Dixon. Everything was good. You know, there was frustrations about not making the Final Four. But overall, it was pretty good. But uh, As a Georgia Tech fan, I'm sitting here thinking, Jesus, I'd just like to make the fucking tournament. And Jamie Dixon's <laughs> getting fired because he can't make the Final Four. But, yeah, okay, keep going. <clears throat> you know, what, what changed it was the move to the ACC. It, that's that's exactly when right. all of a sudden people looked at Jamie Dixon differently. Because you're in the Big East, and you have guys like, you know, Jay Wright before the titles, and other coaches, you're like, we, we have maybe the best coach in the league. You go to the ACC, and you got Coach K, Roy Williams, Bayheim. You know, you're coming in there with Mike Bray, Rick Pitino. And this is before even Tony Bennett becomes sure. the guy he is now. And you're like, we can't win. 
Well, the other thing was that the, the, the pipeline to the, the New York high-level recruits started yeah. to dry up a little bit. You know, those kids are being pulled in by Syracuse and, and other ACC schools. So, you know, Pittsburgh maybe getting the, the second-tier guys that that in the, in, the old, in the Big East as it was while Dixon was there is fine. But when you're going up against the, you know, the A-line guys that are going to the ACC, those players may not be able to cut it. At that point, oh yeah, I mean, in, in the Big East, the best players for you know Pittsburgh's best players were could compete with anyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there weren't and there weren't quietly, despite the overall success, there weren't that many NBA prospects from guys who were all conference players. Right. So Pittsburgh could compete there because of style work. You go to the ACC and you got one and dones with Duke and UNC, and you got. All the other teams coming up, you got Wake, uh, Wake Forest, somehow landing recruits. Right. Georgia Tech, Georgia Tech making moves every once in a while. You're no, like, that's not true. You know, well, <laughs> yeah, like, no one decent year. Yeah. I mean, even in the Big East, there were bottom feeders that Pittsburgh benefited from. Sure. Pittsburgh ended up becoming a bottom feeder. And I think fans were just looking at Jamie Dixon like, you know, we appreciate what you did, but we need someone who can recruit better mm-hmm. to help us take that next step. And basically, you know, he wasn't technically fired, but he was basically pushed out. And he, he saw the opportunity at TCU's alma mater. He took it, and Pittsburgh, you know, thought they had someone, Kevin Stallings, because they wanted someone who could recruit. And... Basically, he shot himself in the foot with how he treated that uh, senior class of sure. Pittsburgh Panthers. Uh, one of the biggest problems there were were, you know, guys like Michael Young and Jamel Artis. They they clashed repeatedly with each other and or with the coach. With with, with Stalin okay. because his, he had a new style, new system, everything. It just didn't work, and basically, it, it kind of was like, look. The players gave up midway. Stallings gave up, too, in a way, because he was making a lot of comments that you could tell were subtle shots. Mm-hmm. And the morale of the program just died. And when you consider the fact that, you know, the top five guys all leave, another four guys who are not even playing much transferred, then you have a situation where Stallings literally starts over, and that wasn't the plan. Sure. Now... Well, I also say that basically once that happened, his name was basically in the mud. Because one thing, even though Pittsburgh fans can be annoying when it comes to the coaches and whatnot, mm-hmm. they're fair, they're pretty protective of players, especially as long as you know you're not problem child like Antonio Brown. <laughs> so in the situation with you know the seniors, everyone took the, the player side, and they're like look, we brought you in, you have talented players, you should not be finishing under 500 and with four wins in the ACC. So once that happened, pretty much everyone turned on Stallings and he had, and then, you know, you go 0-18 and that was it for him. But is the the 0-18 season, is that his fault? I mean, you lost, I mean, you mentioned a couple of the guys, Michael Young, Jamel Artis, to... 
historic players in that program. I believe James Robinson moved on after that first initial season as well. Um, you know, I understand that maybe recruiting didn't uh, didn't happen like it should have, but is you know is zero and eighteen? Is that completely on Kevin Stallings? Did the program just quit on him, or was it just a a misfortune of of player cycle? I guess roster. You cycle. know what I have. You know what the onus is on him for this reason. It was mutually it, it was mutually assured destruction. The players sabotaged to some degree the team, but they're seniors. Mm. And they're not NBA players, so how they weren't going to get punished. But it's it's on the coach. You inherited these players. You signed the contract. Those are your guys. And I've I've seen this before with some of the coaches. You know, don't make comments when they come in about how you know these guys aren't mine. I, I remember mm. uh, Tom Crean in Georgia made a comment, and one of the players' parents clap back on him on social media mm-hmm. and it's like you these are your guys and it's on you to make it work and somehow and he's still signing recruits he embarrassed his players and somehow he still signs high level recruits at georgia which is incredible to me yeah i mean you know he he was able to land marcus Carr, but when word got out that you know and once you know everyone either graduated or transferred it's like well what's going on there mm-hmm. and i think you know, in your first season, you have to set, make the impression, even if it is just a bridge year, you know, you you have to get along with the players. You know, you look at what happened in Louisville, Chris Mack. You know, he inherited what you thought was just an average team, and he took Jordan Orr into an all, into an all-conference player, and now we're talking about them as a title contender. Right. You look at Chris Holtman at Ohio State. You know, he had... He had a uh, big job, turn them into big 10 player of the year, and those programs are now, you know, on the up and up. You have to, in your first year, take that roster and make it into a successful. You can't fight with the guys. Because even if they're in the wrong, they're not going to be around. Sure. You are. And, you know, it to some degree it wasn't all his fault, but you can't go on 18 mm-hmm. and keep your job. Agreed. Um, you know, one thing that Capel was able to do that we talked about that Stallings wasn't was immediately come in and get some high integrity, high impact recruits immediately. Those being Xavier Johnson and Trey McGowan's. Those guys, when you recruit them, not guys that you would think are going to be anything less than three year guys, potentially four year guys. There was talk after last season that, Z, uh, that Xavier may jump early. Obviously, Trey you know, has the potential to put up points in a hurry at the college level. I expect him to be very good this year. How worried are you that the X and Trey could possibly jump early, as early as this season? Oh, I actually, uh, coming into August, I already assumed that Johnson's gone after next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just been the mindset of what you hear around Pittsburgh and part of the issue is he's putting up really good numbers, but he's not really a draft prospect. Mm -hmm. So you're in that very tough spot where if you're a player, if you know that you're not going to probably make a final four run, if you know, you're not going to be an NBA draft prospect, no matter what you do statistically, why not just go and get paid now? Just go to Europe and China when there's no stigma there. So the feeling was he was going to be gone, which is why 
Pittsburgh went after Javon Quinterly so badly. Okay. But they've been going after point guards. But I, I think what you're hearing now is he's happy. I think he sees uh, the allure of being part of a completely rebuilt program. It's his team. He has the keys. He can do whatever he wants. And I think if Pittsburgh makes a good enough jump where they're in the NIT conversation, they're winning games, they're getting another good recruiting class, I can see Xavier Johnson coming back for another year. Uh, As far as McGowan's goes, it all depends on whether or not he can take that leap in terms of production. I think he projects as a four-year guy right now, but, you know, he scored. He he has a couple of 30-point games under his belt. If he can be more consistent and put up a bunch of 20s, you know, he he has more of the NBA frame in terms of being a pure shooting guard, whereas you're kind of wondering if Johnson has the athleticism to compete in the NBA. So, you know, at this this you know, Dane, in terms of college basketball, you can't really assume guys are going to stay four years. That's because at this point, well, you know, they want to just too get many paid. opportunities right now for them these guys to make yeah. money. So, yeah. Yeah, and unless, unless you clear about, you know, what happened with Cassius Winston. Cassius Winston is an NBA player no matter what he does, but he's on the preseason likely number one team in the country. That's a good reason to come back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're going to see guys, you know, including Miles Powell, too, or Seton Hall. If you know you're going to be on a top 10, 15 team, you, you can come back for his team a year. Otherwise, you're going to have guys leave early. And that, you know, creates other problems for other teams. I mean, look at Syracuse. Their two best players left early. So, it, it, I don't, you can't expect anyone to stay four years, be happy if they do, but. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're seeing the guys, I think they're happy with the direction of the program, and I don't think they'll leave unless they really have to leave. My um, the, the incoming class, we'll, we'll, we'll shift to, to this year's class. Uh, the incoming class this year uh, for Pittsburgh ranks as 11th according to 24-7 sports in the ACC. I'm not sure I'm buying that. I really like uh, Koulibaly at the four position, um, sliding in there, replacing Malik Ellison, <clears throat> who's moved on. Uh, Justin, uh, I hope I say this right, uh, Champagny, is that his name? Uh, you know, he, he's played well overseas. I know that you like the Juco kid, Ryan Murphy, as a shooter. I guess as a two-part question... What are your thoughts on the guys that are coming in? I know uh, Drumgold projects as a four-year player, potentially a shooter that they need. And how disappointed were you that you did not land Justin's brother, Julian, who is also a 2-3 player that that committed to St. John's shortly after uh, Justin committed to Pitt? Yeah, so... I think the answer to the second part, I'm not as disappointed only because it's understandable that Julian was going to be in a possibly crowded situation at the ring. If Gerald uh, Drumgul is as good as I think he can be, I think he can lock that position up for the next few years. And I think with uh, with just with uh, the brother who did come here, Justin, Justin yeah. Champagne, I think he 
you know, he, he can switch off between the two and three spots. So you can see, you know, him being able to get playing time as well. But it, it's always going to be, it's always this thing when you can't land guys out of New York. I mean, at this, at this point in the program, New York has been basically the biggest recruiting pipeline for the program. So sure. if you can't get guys out of there, it, it's a struggle. I mean, I was disappointed that we didn't go after Posh Alexander harder. Considering that he he he, I looked at his play and he fits what Pitt likes to do. But mm-hmm. I think the the class overall is really good. I really like what I hear from Ryan Murphy. Uh, you know, he's a guy when he was he was all he was already in college before, and he was more of a spot up shooter, so he shot pretty well from deep. Uh, his you know, first his numbers, season. His first season. Yeah. 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 His numbers, you know, have dropped down. I think part of that's because he truly has been working on his game rather than just being a spot-up guy, actually creating his own offense. So I think he's been go more, go more inside, pull up. I think he's actually become a better overall player. And things you hear in the practice is he's one of the top scorers. Mm-hmm. So he's I played well overseas as well. So Yeah, and, and I think it bodes well for him to possibly be the – replacement for Jarrett Wilson Frame, who next to Johnson was our really only other consistent score from last year. Mm-hmm. So having having that kind of offensive production along with Kulabali who actually gives us an actual power forward. I right. mean Malik Ellison is basically five. undersized wing. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's six five. I mean <clears throat> we, we, we we I mean last year Pittsburgh literally had twelve Brown and Chukwa and basically just asking other guys to play undersized, sure. including Tony. So I think Kulabali, I think Kulabali could be the gem of the group. I love the way he did with Molly in, in the World Cup. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what Jeff Capel can do with the bigs now, because that's, that's the big concern. And I remember you and I having a conversation about Terrell Brown, and it's not that I'm not as high on him, my thing is, I don't think he can be the best big man on a team with NCAA tournament aspirations. That's the concern that I have with even even if Terrell you're just Brown being the piece. Even if you're just asking him to be a rim protector, I don't think I don't think he needs the score for Pittsburgh to be to be a tournament team. Does, is that? Oh, I I mean, well, I actually do think he needs. Well, there has to be some level of front court production. Uh, sure, and, yeah, I I, understand, and I, I get that. I mean, but if you can get, you know, seven points, seven rebounds, and two and a half blocks out of him, I think that's that's quality production for an NCAA potential tournament team. I don't think Pittsburgh's going to make the tournament, but I think that's what he should pre he should provide in order to be effective. Yeah, I think he he's fine for what he does. I think. Um, I just, what I don't want to do is I don't want to ask too much of McGowan and Johnson because he, as great as they looked freshmen, they're still only sophomores. So sure. it's like, you know, we went from the 349th scoring team lap, uh, two years ago to 253rd, still under 70 a game. You know, I think having balance, you know, seeing who's going to be the guys who are going to score more. And if, and if Brown's just going to play his role as a solid rim protecting center, that's perfectly fine. I'm just going to need to get something out of Koulibaly, uh, Tony in particular. He's a guy I'm really interested in because he was a tweener who struggled 
playing either the three or the four spot because he couldn't shoot well on the, to be on the perimeter, but he was just a defensive. He was problematic on a defensive end whenever he played the four spot. So I'm interested. I think there's real good potential with this class, the underclassmen in general. And once again, I do give credit because technically, Capel recruited these group of guys off of that own 18 team mm-hmm. because they were because uh, the recruitments were going on during last season. So I'm never going to complain about what we do get because you win three games out of 36 in the ACC. You know, you get what you can get. So are you? Because I'm not. I'm not a big. Uh, Audie's Tony fan. Um, do you expect his role to to be significantly smaller this year with 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 Drumgool, with Chimpagne, with Murphy? You know, are you more of uh, someone who believes that one of those guys is going to step in and provide, you know, that Jared Wilson frame type scoring at the at the three spot? Do you think Tony's role is diminished a little bit this year? Yeah, I think Tony played simply because he honestly was better than most of the roster. Absolutely. Yep. But you can tell that by the record. But he really wasn't ready to play as much as he did. And like I say, he's, it's hard to tell what position you want to actually play him at. That's because right. if he can't shoot, then having him at the three is worthless. Mm-hmm. But if he doesn't improve offensively at the four spot either, it's like, what are you going to do? Well, if you can't and defend the block as a four-man in the ACC, then, I mean, there's there's not a yeah, whole lot of justification for you to be on the floor. Yeah, and, and the biggest problem when you put Tony at the four is Brown tends to be in foul trouble. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. even right now, it's with him and Chukwa, there's, not, there's still not a lot of front court death in case of injury or foul trouble. So you're going to have to put Tony at the three. But if, you know, Drumgul or even uh, Kanye really does their job at the wing spot and gives us a legit three, Tony could be in a situation where he's not, where he's sort of out of the mix. Sure. Not completely. He'll get minutes. But I think Capel is going to have to really see where he fits in order to really have a spot going forward because he has potential but he has potential you know, but he doesn't do anything exceptionally well i think is the way that i would classify him right now i just yeah you know i'd rather have a specialist like ryan murphy hunting three pointers out of the corner or coming off curls on the wing than a guy you know who's basically a brick wall for for xavier johnson to you know, pass it to on the wing and have him get it right back in Tony, which is basically all you're going to get from the wing out of Tony. And like you said, he can't defend the block. He's a, a decent enough rebounder as a two or a three, but if you're going to play him at the four, he's not really cutting it. It's going to be interesting to see what Capel does with this kid in the in the upcoming season, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I currently have Pitt... Um, both in the same place as everybody else as far as prognostications go for the upcoming season. I have them as a bottom four team in the ACC um, coming into the season, but I also acknowledge the fact that they could finish as high as maybe 9 or 10, depending on the production they get out of Koulibaly, depending on what kind of defensive player uh, Terrell Brown is to go along with uh, McGowan's and, and Johnson scoring in the backcourt, as well as the potential of them 
replacing the production of Jared Wilson frame from one of the, the guys that we already mentioned, whether it be Drumgool or, or Chimpagni or, or uh, Ryan Murphy, what are your expectations for the upcoming season, I guess, is, is my question here. Yeah, so it, it, there's, it's two parts. One, I think at least six wins in the ACSB. Mm-hmm. Uh, really get up there to being competitive. Uh, the, as far as the NCAA tournament, this is tough because on one hand, I do not think they have the talent right now to be a tournament team. Agreed. The problem, though, is I don't think the ACC is good enough to prevent that for Pitt. I, I look at a lot of these teams, and there's just so many questions with the rest of them. There, there's This is down, yeah, I for sure. See, I, I could really see Pitt, I mean, even in the middle, and we and we can have this talk about Notre Dame, but uh, <laughs> one of the things that I put that I say in your favor is outside of the top three expected teams, every other team on the, every other team has roster issues. Yep. I'm not saying Pitt's gonna vault all the way up there, but if we if we you know put Pitt's roster up against Miami's or Clemson's or even Syracuse, you know, it, I, I struggle for someone to tell me that they're definitively better than Pitt if we assume that Johnson McGowan takes that next step. Mm-hmm. So, when I say tournament, no. But I do think I would like to see Joe Lenardi talk about Pitt in terms of any kind of bracketology. Even if we're 12 teams out, I think at least be in the conversation to be some kind of factor. I don't want us to be like for the past two years, a landmine where it's like if you lose to Pitt, you're in big trouble. I think sure. us. I think we should be in that conversation where anywhere between twelve to eight, I would think that Pittsburgh has a real shot at. But they could finish last. That's, <laughs> that's, I mean, it's honestly a possibility uh, too because if you finish you last know, with this team and 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 competing in the same league as as Clemson and Virginia Tech and, and Wake Forest and the teams that are going to roll it this year, then you've got deeper concerns than anything you guys ever had in the Stallings era, I, I believe. Um, True. I think, uh, I think you're correct. I think this year in the ACC is you're going to see, you know, I agree outside those top three, those top three being um, Louisville, UNC, and Duke. Outside of those top three, I think with the remaining dozen teams, what you're going to see in the ACC this year is home team dominance. I think a lot of teams being young, a lot of teams being <clears throat> inexperienced as far as scores go. Uh, one thing that I found the other day online was looking at the ACC from last year, 56 players scored 300 points or more um, for ACC teams last year. Of those 56, 33 of those players will not be returning to the conference this year. So there's a real changing of the guard. It's a youth movement. It's a it's a developmental players year this year in the league. And I think what that points to is a lot of young, inexperienced teams going on the road are going to drop a lot of games. You're going to see the home team getting a ton of wins, which, you know, home court matters in college basketball. But I think this year the ACC is going to put up uh, – a ridiculous number as far as win percentage goes for home teams in conference play. Um, 
Go ahead. Go ahead. And you, I mean, and if that's the case, you know, it, it helps programs like Pittsburgh and Syracuse. I agree. Who I agree. Yep. Are are famous when you have those really great crowds to, to help it there. And you know, Syracuse has that zone, which is always going to be problematic to youngsters. It, it's it'll be interesting for sure to see where all these ACC teams stack up despite, you know, when it comes to their youth and their weaknesses and sort of changing of the guards and whatnot. So it's funny that you bring up the Pittsburgh fans. I, I, I've mentioned this to you before. Do you know who this person is that you can always hear on the television? Or is it not one particular person? It's just the sound that they make at the Oakland Zoo that sounds... Like like a dying animal is that? Yes. Is that the is that the no, common thing, or is that one particular person that's kind of it's, legendary? It's, it's one particular. It's one particular girl. <laughs> I'm not a hundred percent sure she's a student or not, but it's sort of like a, a backhanded compliment. Because on one hand, <laughs> I, I I appreciate any effort a Pittsburgh fan will put in the crowd in this era. On the other hand, the Pittsburgh Zoo is not known for one shrieking fan. It is known for a raucous crowd of students and locals who are going to support the team. So I kind of don't like the fact that people are aware of one fan in particular because it sort of means that everyone else is quiet. Oh, oh, they're they're lunatics as a group. I I acknowledge that. But that one person... Just ter- I can't watch Pittsburgh play at home very often because that's that's all I can hear. It sounds like a dying giraffe, and I just I can't. I have to mute it. I have to try to listen to something else. But that that one girl, she's she's got my number. I just can't get past it sometimes. Um, I want to end the show on uh, a couple. Uh, you know, let's let's play Nostradamus a little bit. Well, we'll do that in a second. In your opinion. Who is the greatest all-time player in Pittsburgh basketball history? Okay, so the guy that comes to mind whenever people talk about the ever uh, is Charles Smith. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, back in in 1984, this is before my time that he was, you know, probably one of the best Big East players in recent memory. Always dominant. I'd never got the chance, of course, to see him live. But I do know of him. Mm-hmm. Um, that all the time. I would say, though, from my era, from who I would be able to watch, which is from 2000 on, it'd have to be Carl Krauser. Ah, uh, he, yeah. he, he was the guy who led some of the best teams ever, and he, and he was the, the do-it-all guard. Could score, no problem, pass, can go down there and get some rebounds, and he was just the quintessential leader. And he was part of just really a golden era of point guards yes. that Pittsburgh had. You know, even when you have guys like Ashton Gibbs, Brad Wanamaker, Priest Aaron, it's like, um, those those were the teams. And it was interesting because when, when we talk about Pitt, I sort of had a flashback to this current Texas Tech team in the past couple of years. And they've sort of become my sort of my favorite team my rooting interest you know with Pitt not being relevant and, and it sort of dawned on me why the Red Raiders is such a favorite and that's because they pretty much did the same style that the Pitt Panthers did in their heyday great defense underrated guys who aren't 
top 50 recruits, but developed into all-American type. Mm-hmm. And you have a coach, whether it was Chris Beer or Jamie Dixon, or even I'll give some credit to Ben Howland before Dixon, where it's just like you have grinded out, tough-nosed defense, but to still shoot the ball effectively. And even if you beat us, it's going to be a rock fight. Mm-hmm. Those are the teams that I sort of appreciate, and I hope that, you know, Capel can bring back to, because because that's going to be Pittsburgh's style. We're not going to be flashy. We're not going to be on Sports Center all the time. Well, you still it's, it's still like, a Big East, an old Big East mentality. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's going to be how Pittsburgh comes back to it and wins. And I think we have a few guys. Uh, on this team who has that Pittsburgh mentality, that dog mentality that you're not going to push us around. And the fact that we weren't getting blown out the way we were before, even despite being less talented, that was what I was proud about from last year's team. I got you. I got you. And and, and I agree. I thought, you know, if you just look at the raw standings from last year, if if you look at Pittsburgh and see, 3-15 Three and fifteen in the ACC. Okay, they sucked. Well, okay. Um, coming off in a one eighteen season, um, flipping your roster, bringing in a new coaching staff, um, breaking in new guards, which guard plays everything college basketball. If you don't pay attention to the fact that this team beat Louisville at home in in Pittsburgh, this team beat Florida State in Pittsburgh. I mean, those are two NCAA tournament teams. You know, there's you know obvious progression within this program immediately after Kevin Stallings left the post. Um, I think the last the last two questions I have for you one of you one of them I didn't prep you on is when do you think Pittsburgh will make the dance again? And is you know what are your expectations as a Pittsburgh fan? Does Capel need to make the, the dance every year? Is it one every two years, one every three years, two out of every five, anything like that? And also for this upcoming season, who wins more ACC games, Pittsburgh, Notre Dame, or Syracuse? Okay, so the first one, uh, I, I think, you know, Jeff Cable can thank Stalins for this. There, there, there really is no expectation right. for, for now. It's just simply... Be relevant. Be competitive. Don't mm-hmm. be a laughing stock. And I think once Pittsburgh is finally good enough to be NCAA tournament caliber, it's going to be once once every other year. Because I think the reality is Pittsburgh fans know their place in the ACC. You know, at best, on the best day, Pittsburgh's going to be fifth. And that's if everything goes well. Okay. As long as these current crop of coaches are still around, there's just nothing that Pittsburgh can really do. But, you can still be the fifth or sixth or seventh best team, make the tournament, and go on a run. So that shouldn't sure that shouldn't bother you. But I think Florida State showed that recently. Yes, and you know success in the ACC that that gives you an extra boost in recruiting. So I think just it's going to be a slow crawl. We're not going to make the tournament probably this year. Uh, depending on who Pittsburgh can land, either via transfer or top-tier recruit. You know, I still have my fingers out for Earl Timberlake. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could possibly convince them. I don't know, but hey, you I, know. I think expectations have give dried Cap- down. To the- you give Capel a duffel bag, he might put something in it that's uh, intriguing. 
Well, look, if we're giving out duffel bags to three star players, then we might as well just go home at this point because now I might have to lace up. <laughs> duffel bag boys for life. So, who do you think uh, <laughs> this year in the nineteen twenty season? Uh, you know, uh, Pittsburgh, Notre Dame, Syracuse. Hell, I'll even throw Virginia in the mix. Which Virginia, for those of you who may not know, Three Man Weave, who is uh, you know is a great publication, came out today with Virginia ranked number nine in the country in the preseason. Something that I respect. Three Man Weave, they're fantastic. They do their homework. I vehemently disagree with that ranking. Of those four teams, who do you think wins the most games in the ACC this year? Of those four, I- I'm going to go. Ooh. Process of elimination. It's not going to be Syracuse. It's not going to be Syracuse. I, I, that was the first team that I would eliminate as well. Yep. yep. The, the problem with them is they have too many flaws, and if you and if they don't have an actual big man anchor in that zone, they're done. So it's not going to be them. Uh, it, it's not going to be Pittsburgh unless Xavier Johnson becomes first team All ACC. I just can't. I just I need to see more offense. Uh, between Notre Dame and Virginia, I think for now I'm just I, I have to go at Virginia. <laughs> come on, you you were there. I just needed to. I, I couldn't come up with anything really fast was. enough to push you over over the edge on that. Yeah, and, my, and Michael, I, I looked at Notre Dame's roster, mm-hmm. and I respect John Mooney. Yep, I respect Gibbs. Uh, I'm also very high on Prentice Hub. I think you know he's not as flashy as Johnson. But I think he's going to be just as effective. Mm-hmm. So I have no issue with that. My he he went through a, a I, terrible stretch last year that just you know nuked his confidence completely. I think, and I, I I look for a lot of growth from Prentice Hub this year. Well, you know what? I'm not even sure if that was all him. I just think he didn't have any good guards to pass to. I mean, it's it's kind of impressive that he has four assists a game, considering <laughs> the guards. The issues they were having, especially when Fluger went down. So I really like him. I think the problem I have, and and I talked and and I discussed this with uh, Jonathan Warner as well, it's it's hard to project certain freshmen to take that jump if you didn't see enough of them. And I'm looking at guys like uh, Robbie uh, Comerty and Dane Goodwin, and it's like, uh, are are we sure that they're going to, you know, really be, you know, quality ACC guards. Because it, it, it's kind of like, you know, my I, eyes were raised when they brought in Cormac Ryan. Mm-hmm. Is it like, are we just adding him for depth? Or is it like well, Mike Gray is trying to tell us what he really thought about these guards? He's not immediately eligible, correct? No, not not for... Yeah, not he's going uh, to slide into... Yeah. He's going to slide into TJ Gibbs, who's going to vacate after this year. I think... You know, Carmody is coming off labrum surgery, so this is going to be kind of a rehab. He's going to – this is his basically his freshman season. Um, I do – I'm huge on Goodwin, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I see your point. But I think Cormac Ryan is more of a, a talented kid that's going to slide into the T.J. Gibbs slot after T.J. graduates this year. And, and I'll say this, too, you know, and part of me for forgetting that you had Notre Dame 4 because I saw, you know, a whole bunch of rankings since then. But I will say, you know, there's an argument to be made that Virginia, Florida State, and NC State, who I think is the consensus, you know, next tier three, are pretty vastly overrated. 
Virginia, I agree with you. I think if we excluded the last three years of Tony Bennett's era, if this ro- if we had this roster three years ago, they wouldn't be ranked. Yeah. They, they wouldn't be ranked. And I think, you know, you look at Florida State, you know, they bring in a five-star guy, but they did lose a whole lot of rotation players. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you lose Kevin Gelly, you lose Mann, you lose Nichols, Kofer. It, it's like it's hard for me just to assume that other guys are going to step up. And as far as uh, NC State, you know, I believe one of your guys, uh, the chip, <laughs> is really high on them. He is. He picked them to win the league, which uh, it, it takes uh, takes bananas to do that. Um, I've actually, I've revisited, I guess, my rankings uh, since we did it in June. And if I had to, if I was to vote right now, I would actually probably knock Notre Dame down from fourth to fifth. And I probably would put North Carolina State up to number four. Um, and that would still keep Virginia at six. I, I, I just, you know, if, you know, Mike Bray was a darling as recently as two years ago. And he had massive injuries two years ago to Colson to Farrell. Last year, he loses Fluger, and he's reliant on a, a bunch of freshmen. And now, all of a sudden, we're down on the Notre Dame program. I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that if he had this roster three years ago, there there wouldn't be anybody saying that Notre Dame was an unranked team or not a top-five team in the ACC. Yeah, I mean... I think you can make a legit argument that outside the top three, everyone else is extremely vulnerable. I'm yes. not high on NC State at all. Yeah. I think NC State is, is, I mean, unless Markel Johnson can score even more, it's like I, I, I don't know what NC State's going to do. So if you want to make the argument that Notre Dame can make that leap, I'm not mad at you, but it's like, you know, is Rex Fluger really that is really that important that you can't win more than three games and you lose the pit? <laughs> like that that's 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 just gonna be that's it's a tough pill to swallow to go from three ACC wins to now fourth place overall. But at the same time but, the ACC's got what, seven, eight tournament teams tops this year? I think seven's probably a good number. I I mean I'm struggling to view Florida State or even NC State tournament teams. Like I'm not saying five, mm. but you oh, know if Warner's going to Warner's gonna come after you on that one because Warner loves Florida State this year. He's a big Florida State fan uh, this year. I tell you what, though, if you're in a Pac-12, if you're these mid-major leagues that's crying about being one-bit league, you look at the ACC and, and it, this is the year. If you're oh, going to make the move, off, yeah. you're going to get yeah. bid. Yep, uh, no, I agree 100. percent um, T, that's all I got, man. I, I thought that was I, I thought that was great. Was there anything else you wanted to hit on before we take off? No, well, other than you know, everyone, you know, you got some jokes. You got probably you know, I say about six more months of jokes, but <laughs> Pittsburgh will be back and they will be problematic. And you know, if we can keep capable for a good six more years and get rid of these old guys. You know, maybe Pitt can yeah, I said the rise same thing. all the way up. I think I, I said the same thing about Keats and about Mac as well. When we, you know, you, you know, the next four or five years, you get you get Kay and Bayheim and Roy. Mike Bray's probably going to retire from Notre Dame when his current contract is up. Um, Tony Bennett is going to be a hot name as far as NBA teams go. 
you move these guys out, it's going to be Keats and Mack and, and other guys that are going to be looking to take over this this conference and Capel's definitely on the short list, I think, with his ability to recruit. And, you know, if he keeps a, a quality staff like he has right now that's good at in-game adjustments, I think Pittsburgh is in good hands. Yeah, I'm, I'm just all, I just, at this point, you know, and I'll say this to everyone listening, if you have a fan of bubble teams and you're thinking about coaches, you know, I even hear people talking about Brad, Brad Brunel being on the hot seat. My thing is this, it can always get worse. <laughs> you can always can hire, always Kevin Stallings is still on the market right now, so yes, it could absolutely get worse. Oh. Tristan, man, I thank you for joining me, and uh, I'll, I'm sure I'll talk to you since I pretty much do every day. So thanks for uh, thanks for coming on ACBR. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you very much. I will talk to you soon. All right, buddy. All right. All right, guys, that was episode number 72. That was Tristan Freeman. That was us. Uh, not chewing the fat, if you will, uh, regarding Pittsburgh basketball. If it sounded like I was a little bit, uh, a little bit down, it was because... I actually did a couple interviews yesterday. I talked to Dan Taylor, who was, who is the uh, the strength and conditioning coach for the Georgia Tech men's basketball team. Uh, it's not a it's not a podcast interview, I guess. It's just a phone conversation. Uh, he gave me some some insight as to Georgia Tech's training and, and how they do things um, within the program. Because I, I'm writing a story for for G Tech for Bustin Brackets, and he just he wanted to. You know, uh, give me a phone, give me a call, and uh, and and drop some knowledge on me, if you will. And that interview went fine. And then a couple hours later, I had Tristan on, and T and I talked for I'm gonna say ten or fifteen minutes. And you know, I've got screens up on the laptop, and I just happened to open up Audacity, which is the uh, the program that I use to record the show. And for some reason, it was recording me, but it was not recording Tristan. And after a few seconds of fucking around, um, I found that one of the uh, the drop-down menus had changed, and there was a different uh, selection made as opposed to it was on single channel instead of instead of multi-channel. I guess is is, is where I'm going with this. So, uh, you know, we talked for about 10, 15 minutes, and then we had to go back and start over and do it all over again, which is frustrating and embarrassing and and you know it's kind of demoralizing a little bit so um <laughs> i thought the interview came out pretty well uh for for talking about pittsburgh so you know i, I hope you guys enjoy i'm working on a couple other guests next week i have matthew travis on who is a Boston brackets contributor and a student at alabama but he is a diehard duke fan so uh it should be an interesting show next week we're going to record that and then i'm working on getting uh somebody for syracuse in the coming weeks as well so um gonna try to get you know some kind of media member fan um you know, somebody associated with the program, something for each of these um, ACC teams before we get started on the season. And then uh, we'll work on some guests for the first couple weeks of the season as well. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy, and I will see you next weekend. Later.